HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd for Heritage Radio Network. I am, well, not in the studio, but actually in my apartment with Bronwyn Percival and Francis Percival about their new book, which is just amazing and setting fire to the cheese world, Reinventing the Wheel, uh, Milk, Microbes, and the Fight for Real Cheese. Welcome. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Hello. Yes. Welcome. So... You are on a book tour. Yes. No, we're very excited to be on the first of four trips to the United States between now and November. Um, I, I think I have been a little bit crazy with organizing our schedule. Um, uh-huh. Is that hitting, your job? Yes, uh, your schedule absolutely. I'm in, I'm in charge managing. of schedule, scheduling and marketing. And <laughs> we are hitting 27 cities for almost 50 events in the United States. Oh, my so, gosh. So we're really... I'm delighted to have gotten you for this interview and for this show because this seems like such an important cheese book. Well, thank you very much. We're really, really excited to have the chance to get the ideas out there. Yes, yes. So anyway... I'm always curious about the writing process. What book did you set out to write? Oh, so <laughs> the book in, in, in many ways. So we, we, we are married. We've been married now for, for, for 10 years in November. I noticed you had the same last name. Yes, and that exactly. was a tip-off. Isn't it a coincidence that I write with my sister? Yes, uh, as, as I tell the groupies. Uh, <laughs> Now, and uh, this actually, it starts out very much as a continuation of a discussion that really was part of our, of our very first date. Oh, Where great. we were both these sorts of larval creatures very early in our careers. And I was in almost complete ignorance of the cheese world. I was involved with cooking and otherwise a wine right, guy. Right, right. And, and Bronwyn had just started working with Nils Yardary. She'd already uh, she'd made cheese at Baba Link and mm-hmm. had been uh, done some interesting work, work in Senegal when she was in the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. And we had this, it wasn't quite an argument, but it was an interesting, just before, before we sat down for dinner on our first date, and it was a discussion about cheddar. <laughs> and Bronwyn <laughs> pointed out to me that cheddar is... A verb, as well as a noun, that cheddaring is a process. Now, I was in complete ignorance. I didn't, wow. I didn't, I didn't realize this at all at the time. Whereas I was, was essentially maintaining to, no, but cheddar is a place. Cheddar must always taste of the place where it's from, and isn't this an abomination that all these other countries make cheddar? Uh, well, at least you had, you know, a step up from some people. <laughs> but I got a second date. I got a second date. Because I paid, I know. Uh, <laughs> And so it, it's it, that that sort of discussion of, of bringing some of those values of the 
uh, of the wine industry and some of the concepts that, that were already already formed in what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And essentially over the, the, the marital kitchen table, po- poking Bronwyn at each other and saying, <laughs> why isn't your industry... More like mine. More like mine. <laughs> That's a great origin. Mm, okay. No. So, so, but that's like how many years ago? That must have been 12 years ago. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. So at th- then when do things develop? So having had so many arguments and um, having Francis work more and more within the world of wine, we ultimately went and worked a vintage with our friends in Burgundy. And that, mm-hmm. for me, was really a moment of truth that mm-hmm. we visited this. I took a one-month vacation from Neil's Yard Dairy, we went to... Um, Europe is a wonderful yes. place to work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Plenty of vacation time. Right, right. But it allowed us to go together and spend harvest at this farm and see a world in which farmers were not only paid extremely well mm-hmm. for growing interesting things, but were also superstars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of these things that Francis had been saying to me about why isn't the cheese world more like wine suddenly hit home to me that actually here's an agricultural product that is adding value and making great sustainable farming actually financially interesting as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the more and more that we thought about applying those ideas to cheese and where cheese, the cheese industry could potentially have those conversations, but they weren't necessarily mm. happening yet. That really was the genesis of this. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think, and then I think the interesting thing was that was immediately followed by Bronwyn having the chance to work for a couple of months in what was then Rachel Dutton and Ben Wolf's lab mm-hmm. at. Harvard, mm-hmm. working on cheese rind microbiology, mm-hmm. on the microbial ecosystems within cheese, mm-hmm. and the combination of those two impulses of the, the, the science, scientific understanding... Right. The farming system. Right, all, right. There, there, there were things here to think about and ultimately to, to write about, and mm-hmm. it, was just, it seemed like such an, an interesting moment for cheese mm-hmm. that it was this great opportunity to just have the discipline to put mm-hmm. all of these ideas down on paper and sort out all of them for ourselves. Okay. Now, was there a proposal or did a publisher approach you or did you approach them? I think our agent has still not forgiven us <laughs> for the the book that I think she had in mind mm-hmm. was the sort of a very nice book, a sort of a run through <laughs> either as a an expose of naughty things in the cheese industry, <laughs> or of as a collection of wonderful bucolic tales of right, it, right, isn't, right. isn't, isn't cheese, cheese interesting. Yes. And, and what she's got is all right, what we, the book that we really wanted to write, right. which is this well, interest. It's a political treatise. Yeah. It's a yeah. manifesto. Yeah. It is, it, and it, it even touches on our issues today, even more so than when you were probably writing it. Oh, little yes. did we know. Little did we know. It's like blossoms. <laughs> the section on cognitive... Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the way in which our values construct the way that we process data. Right. Um, and, right. And, I fa- I'd never heard of that guy, Cahan. Yes. From, yes. Yale, law from school. Yale. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God, he's explaining why we can't talk to each exactly. other. Exactly. And also, even more importantly, a route that maybe we could rephrase the same ideas in a way that regulators I'd actually want to listen to. Right, right, um, right, right. So. Okay. Although, although so, so your publisher... Um, did you have financing for these trips, or did you self There was finance? a small advance, which rapidly <laughs> got spent, and it's one, well, of, the, one yes, of the disadvantages of working together. you a lot of trips. And I think there were, we were very lucky that for one of our trips, for the trip to, to Denmark to research starter cultures, mm-hmm. actually the culinary historians of New York gave us oh, a, nice. uh, a, a very generous grant. And so, so we, we, we've come and we've given a, a big presentation for them. But that was, that was, that was great support. Right. And other, other than that, really, it, it was, this was something we absolutely passionately mm-hmm. believed in. Mm-hmm. And, and we wanted to do, and actually was really enriching. And I would spend my money and my vacation time, uh, our, right. our time. Oh, it sounds like. Anyway. You had a, a very 
excellent, interesting time in every place, yeah. even if you didn't agree with the people. Yes, yes. <laughs> even almost even more so if we didn't agree with people because that gave us stuff to talk to, right. to think about. Right, yeah. right. So this is a must-read book for everyone in the cheese community. It is well written, incredibly well researched, and covers many very serious topics. When asked, what is this book about? <laughs> What's the answer? Oh, that's that. I mean, I think I'll, I'll give my answer, and then Francis <laughs> okay, can give okay, his yeah, answer. We'll answer. See if we, <laughs> we, we actually agree. I tell people that it is about looking back to go forward. It's about how cheese has changed in the last century and a half, and how the forces of progress have, in many ways, unbalanced systems that were working really, really well that our great grandparents had developed just by dint of experience over time, mm -hmm. and how it's only now with the help of really cutting-edge science that we can start to understand how they were right and maybe put together some of these things that we've lost into a new, a new generation of cheeses that are the expressions of real farming systems. Absolutely. I, I would say the, it's about the, the history, the science, and the future, and how mm -hmm. the future is is is, is the, the the synthesis of the history and the science of, of, of cheese making mm -hmm. and of dairy farming, and and yes, that that pro whole project of putting the agriculture back in mm -hmm. to cheese okay. of how I think when we when we have the conversation about cheese, when I compare it with with, with my own work in the wine industry, if you would visit a winemaker. The first thing they want you to see, they will take you out into the vineyards and they will, the conceit within the industry, possibly even too much, mm -hmm. is that wine is made in the vineyard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would love more cheesemakers when we visit them to, to take us out take to into the, the fields, yeah. take right, us to the, right, right, to the right. cows and, and mm -hmm. talk about that. Mm -hmm. Now, how did the title, when did the title come about? Reinventing it was, the wheel. It, I, it was pretty early on, and we were uh, we were arguing about it, and we knew we had to. We, we were thinking maybe we should just call it real cheese, but then what does that even mean? And we were trying to come up with puns, and it was you know it was sort of like revolving the uh, you know and and I had I had a brilliant moment of insight in our kitchen, and I said I know what we're going to call the book, and uh, so reinventing the wheel was was clear the moment it came. Oh, from and you best it? quality is her humility. Yeah. <laughs> You just can't get over the fact that I was the one who... I was responsible for the subtitle <laughs> to actually gloss it. Oh, I think good. Reinventing yeah. the Will, our translators in other languages slightly resent it because it works as brilliantly as a concept uh -huh. with it, because it's a pun in oh, English. Okay. And if you're trying to bring turn, turn it into Russian... Oh, uh, it, oh it doesn't work it, as well? It doesn't work as well because they, they don't call a, 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 a cheese... Oh, the wheel. ...a wheel, and they oh, don't have so this expression of... So what did you of, have to call it? It's, we haven't yet heard from oh, the translator okay. oh, what... Okay. Okay. what they've okay. called it but oh, it, it's, okay. it's yeah that's interesting I didn't think of that now who wrote what or did you do it actually together or did you separate <laughs> we started out <coughs> this is a this is a um, I don't want to start a marital spat uh, but the marital spat has already been had believe me <laughs> we started out writing the proposal working together on either side of the table with a google docs um, document okay. open, and okay. that was that did not work very well. Um, I was too <laughs> quick to correct the spellings while the word was still being typed, and it was just that was too immediate a collaboration. Okay. In the end, we ended up working on the proposal together and really mapping out what the, each chapter was going to be about. Mm -hmm. And then with each one of those chapters, they're different sections, and we split them up okay. and basically assigned them to ourselves based on what we were most most qual you know most in the position to write, and then we spliced them back together, and Francis added the jokes. I think yeah. oh, one, one of the... He's the jokes. He's the, he's the oh, one of the... But the jokes are often about you. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> not about you, but more... I think the I mean, one of the interesting things is where it's the narrative of Brian's <coughs> family and of Bronwyn's life. Yeah. I wrote almost all of those sections oh, myself. Okay. Um, <laughs> but you say in the book that Bronwyn's family doesn't get your jokes. That is a, a, a true statement that has been fact-checked and, and signed off by, uh, with, by everyone. With, with, everyone. The, when, you, when, you, when you mention people by name, you have to get a waiver, so there is a... Uh, yeah, I think one of the... If, if you like playing the literary sleuth, 
no. one of the interesting things is to read the book and try and see where the where the joins happen. I couldn't set, tell. I couldn't tell. Um, you're, I think you're both must must be really good writers. <laughs> and there's, but every once in a while, there's something sort of majestic that I would say, hmm. Where did that sentence come from? <laughs> You're uh, the yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, pointing at himself. Sh- sham, sham Augustan prose is definitely <laughs> the, the <laughs> that, That's from your part. side. Okay, now, um, okay, I just want to tell the listeners who, uh, <coughs> many of whom haven't seen or read the book yet, um, that these are some of the chapter titles. Breed. Feed, microbes, risk, cultures, families and factories. So you kind of know that it's a really serious book, but you split it up in a really interesting way, not just chronological. So how did you pick your chapters? Did anything really important get left out? I think this was one of the... uh the most interesting decisions during the, the actual drafting process of the book. In, in yeah. the, the, the first half of the book, in its totality, started out initially in the plans as the first chapter. <laughs> and that it expanded and expanded and expanded and we realised that the 30,000 word first chapter was not, not, not really something that we could live with. Uh, and then, then finding the logical uh, divisions. I, yeah. I agree, if it was a pure work of history, then a chronological approach would have been more logical. Right. But because we wanted to slice it thematically so mm-hmm. that it would tally with the science, we've already mm-hmm. talked about a little bit about, about right. some, of, some of the ideas with risk, bringing in things right. like cultural cognition right. and, and mm-hmm. cost-benefit analysis. And that makes sense in a chapter about risk, but mm-hmm. doesn't position itself because it, we're not just telling the story of pasteurization or of disciplining mm-hmm. milk. Right. We're telling that this, this, so each chapter is centered initially, in our, or initially in our drafting, was centered around an individual cheese that we felt oh, was the perfect example of the issues involved within okay. that. It's, I, it's become I, a little bit foggier yeah, in the actual I did not get that. finishing of, um, of the... Because uh, to me, the titles were really good mm-hmm. in terms of... And I, and I think it'd be good for readers who just want to read one, one section. Yeah. They can read a chapter and get a full idea of what yeah, you're talking absolutely. about. Absolutely. No, I do think it works well as a serial work as well that you mm-hmm. don't have to you don't have to start at the beginning and read straight to the right. end. And if you get bogged down in the microbiology chapter and it's all just too right. much, right. it's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> fine to skip on to the next one <laughs> and right. start right. you know well, start from and, the And and I mean in terms of discipline it is a work of synthesis. So each chapter concentrates within a different discipline. So yes, mm-hmm. there is the microbiology chapter, which is dealing with microbiology, but the breed chapter is about breed genetics, the practicalities mm-hmm. of breed uh, of breeding dairy animals. And it's a, a very, very different set of disciplines. And it, it was interesting yeah. for us sharing this work with experts who would very often comment that they were expert on one chapter. Right, but not and then the, not others. the others. And it was right. one of one of the challenges right. was finding people to 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 read, to check, yeah. to chase yeah, up, that's who, true. who who had the, the 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 breadth to be able to to follow through everything. Right, and um, I think also people pop up in different mm. chapters, so yes. it's kind of nice to see. Oh, I know this person yes. already. Yeah. So, so he or she is back. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of cool too. It weaves it mm. well. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, it occurs to me that this book is is more than a dissertation. <laughs> it really is. And and the most similar cheese book that I can think of is Heather Paxson's uh, The Life of Cheese. Mm-hmm. Did you I mean feel we, that? We are great admirers of Heather's work and um, certainly the whole But you disagree with her. In some ways. Yes, very, yes, uh, yes, you know, yes. and, that, and those two things are not mutually exclusive. But well, I mean, and, and there's no reason for them mm-hmm. to be. No, right. absolutely. And I think what our goal with this was to do is to write something that's not just academically robust, but also a fun read. And yeah, that yeah. To also was the great challenge. That if we put people, you know, if we if we put people in an academic mindset and make them feel like they're um, doing a homework assignment in the library, then we have absolutely failed. Mm-hmm. Um, that what we want to do is 
synthesize all of these different disciplines and then turn this into a story that actually has relevance not just to the world of cheese but also to agriculture sustainability of our mm -hmm. food system mm -hmm. and, and also something that has global relevance because where, where mm -hmm. Heather's is very much a work of, of, of ethnography mm -hmm. within a distinct community within mm -hmm. largely the northeastern United States we wanted to be able to have relevance to, to, to Europe, to France, to, to France, England, to, England, yeah, to yeah, Australia. Because yeah, yeah. in many ways, the French can learn a lot from the English and the Americans. And, and they may not know it. They may not know it. <laughs> um, it's not just... Just, just yeah. being a you know anti-French person. No, no, no. I, even though I love French cheese. <laughs> Absolutely. And French cheese <laughs> succeeds dramatically in some ways and fails miserably yeah, in others. Yeah, that was interesting. That was interesting. Now, okay, the cheese crush. <laughs> Hosea Twomley? Yes. Is that how you say Josiah. it? Josiah. Oh, Josiah. He's a very uh, old so school now, name. Who found him? Um, who's got the crush on him? And of course, I love the sluttish nastiness that he calls, what does he call sluttish nastiness? So, um, when, when, when dairymaids don't keep their dairies clean, they oh, okay. are bastions of sluttish nastiness. And I remember I was reading this, uh, this book, there's so much that's available digitized now in terms of uh -huh. old manuscripts, uh -huh. but the whole book is printed in with the old long F sort well, of right, it's, early it's, modern. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book, isn't it? it's not early modern. It's, 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 all right. It's Says the, the historian. <laughs> Tell me what font that this book is No, no, but, but it, it's, it's printed in the, in the late 18th century, so mm -hmm. the, the, the second edition, which is the, is the, the, the key interesting uh, um, adjustments and editorial mm -hmm. changes, <laughs> late, late 1780s. Mm -hmm. And this is someone who has essentially the same job that Bronwyn, as the cheese buyer for Niels Yard Dairy, has now. Then. So he, he, then. Whoa, so he is, he is a cheese factor. He, his That's job, what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, okay. And I think Bronwyn's new next set of business cards from Niels Yard Dairy will say cheese factor oh. on them. <laughs> but, but, but his job is essentially to go and to visit farm, farms mm -hmm. and to select cheese, to taste cheese with the, with the, with the, the dairy maids, with the, mm -hmm. the people making the cheese, and then select the cheese he wants to buy, to buy it, and then bring it back to London and, and sell it at mm -hmm. profit in London. Amazing. And Amazing. he's... Actually, he, he's, a, he's a figure who's, who's drawn much attention from historians, mm -hmm. largely because he is quite robust in how he expresses his opinions. He, is, he really is, that there's a little bit of the sort of the Donald Trump about mm -hmm. how he, mm -hmm. he doesn't quite call people he's sad, provocative. sad losers and <laughs> oh, haters. But he, <laughs> but he calls he, them sluts. He calls, yeah. <laughs> and, and so there is a strand, and once you're doing this, this sort of the initial literature search for, 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 the, for uh, dairy history, and for, uh. particularly in terms of the acquisition of expertise, how do you acquire the knowledge that you need to be able to make the cheese? Mm -hmm. And there is a, a protracted debate uh, amongst gender historians about, about his work. So there were, there were, one of the classic papers was published in, in 1990 in a, in a history journal, uh, essentially around Josiah Twomley, saying essentially he is a very bad man. Uh, we entirely disagree with this because he, he actually has tremendous respect for the cheesemakers of England. Yeah, he's uh, saying England. back then yeah. what you'd like to hear now. No, exactly. Absolutely. Which is amazing. And he even dedicated the second edition of his book to the dairy women yes. of Great Britain, without whom he would never have been able to gain the knowledge that it took to write the What I really hope is that in 200 years' time, there's a professor at Columbia University Finding who writes you. A, exactly <laughs> and says, Fr Bronwyn and Francis Percival, they're really bad influences. They're bringing... So judge Right, but but we're bringing them back. And I think the, the really nice thing in in the U.S., uh, you really are blessed with some amazing uh, food-centric cookbook uh, stores. Yes, yes. Uh, places like Kitchen Arts and Letters in mm -hmm. New York, mm -hmm. like uh, Omnivore Books in San Francisco, and one of those specialists, uh, Rabelais Books up in in Maine, is a specialist antiquarian book dealer, mm -hmm. and. We bumped into Don at the Oxford Symposium this year, mm -hmm. and 
he didn't have the second edition that we were we were really chasing after, but he had a third edition. <laughs> uh, and so we saw my my gift to Bronwyn to celebrate the because Josiah told me is very much Bronwyn's cheese crush. Oh, she, okay. She okay. reads through this book and sees someone saying exactly the same things she thinks about right, uh, right. about the producers with whom she works. Yeah. Uh, and so I so I was able to buy oh, for Bronwyn as a, as, as, yes. a, as a gift. Oh, this, this, very uh, nice. Very nice. A good husband. Yeah. He's a good husband. He has his moments. Okay, let's take a break. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this is Diane Stemple cutting the curd. We're discussing reinventing the cheese and reinventing the wheel and with Bronwyn Percival and her husband Francis. Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious fresh cheese curds, or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com, and as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. Okay, so uh, it's funny that you said that cheeses informed the chapters because what immediately hooked me as I'm starting to read online before the book mm-hmm. came was the Salaires. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah. Am I saying it right? Yeah, I mean, half of the French people say salaire and half of people <coughs> say salaires. So oh, I okay, think okay, right. yeah. okay. So I think I ran across it before... Uh, well, when I was already in love with cheese, but before I had started any cheese career, mm-hmm. um, at L'Ambassade d'Auvergne, mm-hmm. and it was like, why do I like this cheese so much? I don't like Cantal. Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on? And so can you talk about uh, the Solaires, and did that start the book? Um, in a way, I think that Salaire didn't necessarily prompt us to start writing the book, but when we went and went with the scientist, Marie-Christine Montel, to visit the cellar producer, we really recognized how, in a single cheese, it synthesized this idea of tasting a farming system. Mm-hmm. And the truth about cellar, I mean, the thing that's so amazing about it is that it is only as good as the sum of its parts. You can have amazing milk produced in an amazing way and then have production that's a little bit out of tune. They, maybe they leave too much moisture in their curd mm-hmm. or they don't get it mm-hmm. acid enough. And it can be rank. Mm-hmm. Some of the okay. cellar on the market is essentially inedible. Oh, um, okay. But when it's made well, and when the milk is really on form, which I think is a lot of, you know, is, is the case for a lot of these cheeses, mm-hmm. then it, I think it reaches a level of, like, clarity of flavor and expression and depth and complexity mm-hmm. that really is what we're thinking about as the, the essential... As what you want yeah. cheese to go towards. Yeah, and what mm-hmm. many cheeses in the past... It represents the sort mm-hmm. of cheese making where the microbes come from the process, come from the environment, that they're mm-hmm. not the products of a biotechnology company, right. but that they really right. are what has evolved to work within the system. Mm-hmm. And thinking about 
if we could take those ideas and apply them in other contexts. And that's not to say that every cheese should be like Salaire, anything, mm. but Salaire is the answer to a particular set of questions in a particular place. But the underlying themes, how do we harness the microbiome of the farm? How do we make those flavors manifest in those cheeses that are made there? Mm -hmm. How can we make cheese that tastes out of cheeses made nowhere else on earth? Right. That right. really is the essential cheese. Ab absolutely. I, I think <coughs> looking back at the inception of the book, I think, I think that Salaire and particularly Marie-Christine Montel's work mm -hmm. on Salaire was instrumental because back in 2012 when Bronwyn first launched her conference on the science of artisan cheese, a mm -hmm. conference that brings together researchers, uh, scientists, with primary practitioners, with mm -hmm. cheese makers, with mm -hmm. cheese regulators, bringing everyone together in the room to, to hear about the latest uh, scientific research. Mm -hmm. It was about the gel. It was right, about right, right. this idea. So, so I think it's probably well, important that we need to tell the listeners about Yes, tell so, us about that. So Salaire is... Almost, I, I think the way to imagine it is it's like the, the Grand Cru of Cantal. So mm -hmm. this, this, this ancient cheese of the Auvergne, of the, the mountains of the Massif Central in, in, in central France. And so Salaire is also, it, it's, it's a, 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 the cheese, but it's also the breed of, of animal. Mm -hmm. And they are these magnificent, red, hardy, built like a tank cows. Mm -hmm. Only 5% of them are actually milked. Most of them are used as beef animals. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, a lot of them go to Italy for, uh, for vitelloni, for, for sort of, sort of rose veal. Mm. They are astonishingly rugged animals mm -hmm. and they're basically designed, you can turn them out at the beginning of summer up to the top of the mountain. They will so eat and thrive so on like a diet goats. of... Yeah, exactly, like exactly. On a diet. Okay. And you, you, you come back in the autumn and you count how many you've got and right. you've probably, probably got some more. Some more. Yeah. And that, that, that essentially <laughs> is, is, is what they're designed for. Uh -huh. And the interesting conceit of them is that they, they don't give out, get drop, they don't release their milk unless they're in the presence of their calves. Right, I thought that was so sweet. Mm. No, it so is amazing. Sweet. So they have to hook up the cow mm -hmm. and keep the calf there. there. So they so they can melt them. Exactly, and it means that instead of, of pre-dipping or post-dipping or whatever mm -hmm. complicated thing for, 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 for cleaning the udder a, a dairy farmer might do, essentially they just work the calf across each teat, mm -hmm. so, which, is, which is nature's way to clean a teat, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, they then milk in the middle of the field. Mm -hmm. And then, and this is where Marie-Christine Montel's research really came in, yeah. the, instead of adding a starter culture, the milk is, is transferred to a, a, a wooden barrel, a wooden mm -hmm. sort of small vat which called is a called, gel. I didn't know how to pronounce that, gel. Yeah. gel. And, and it's, it's, let's spell it, G-E-R... L-E-S? Okay. Yes. Yeah. okay. Okay. And the interesting thing about these about these these these, these, How these big barrels. Are they? they can be different sizes. Oh, so okay. the smallest ones might hold uh, forty or fifty liters and okay. the largest maybe a hundred okay. two hundred liters. They're designed for two people to carry, so yeah. that they, oh, they, okay. very, they very okay. rarely yeah. they have yeah. sort of holes so you can okay. put you can, you can sort of like a sedan chair. Exactly, yeah, you can carry oh, them okay. like a sedan. Exactly. Okay. Um, and the interesting thing about them is they, they, they never see a cleaning chemical. Right, right. The best producers, all they ever do is they rinse them out with some of the whey from cheese production. Mm. And so now, wasn't this challenge? Absolutely, because you can imagine freaking out the French public it. health regulators when you say, <laughs> so you have a dirty barrel that you put your milk in, <laughs> which is already contains a cocktail of sort of calf spit that I'm not entirely happy with. <laughs> Uh, and then you don't add any starter culture. And so, wow, uh, cool, right, this is great. Uh, and it tastes delicious. Yes. And, and they, they really were, they, they, they were subject to scrutiny, and you can imagine there's a lot for, for, were, for a public health been, regulator yeah. to be sceptical about. And, the, and if the producers were terrified, there are only five remaining producers of, 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 of Salat Tradition, mm -hmm. and, and so they, they picked up the bat phone. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or, or they, they shine, they shone the bat <laughs> signal into the sky. And Mary Christine is the call of last resort for French cheesemakers <laughs> who have microbiological problems or who have okay. challenges from their, uh, from their regulators. Mm -hmm. She is a government scientist, mm -hmm. but her research group uh, at Aurillac, at, at the, the INRA, the French uh, Government Agronomy Research Organization, mm -hmm. uh, 
does amazing work. And they, they have the perfect integration of a test lab for cheese making where they can make small batches in very controlled fashion of their local cheeses mm -hmm. with a pretty cutting edge microbiology lab yeah. sort of and it, it, mm -hmm. it's stacked up so okay. one is a, one is a, um, on top of the other and they're perfectly integrated mm -hmm. and I don't know if Roman wants to talk about the the, the biofilms mm -hmm. on these uh, these gel that they discovered I mean basically what um, Marie Christine and her and her team found was that when they brought this gel back to the lab and they added sterile milk to it it was acting as a natural starter factory that within Within 30 seconds, they were getting level, high levels of inoculation of lactic acid bacteria, ripening bacteria, everything that was needed to make salar cheese. Mm -hmm. um, and the health authorities said, that's great, but what happens if you have listeria in your milk or staph aureus mm -hmm. in your milk? Mm -hmm. These things are going to happen. You're milking in the middle of the field. Mm -hmm. So what happens then? And so because they had this brilliantly outfitted research unit, they were in a position to be able to do those experiments um, in the lab and they took milk and they inoculated it with mm -hmm. no levels of listeria, a, a whole range of pathogens, mm -hmm. and they made cheeses with that. Mm -hmm. And then they came back and they tested the cheeses when they were ripe and ready to sell. And this um, is an amazing it, result. It was so, I mean, it was amazing because science seldom gives results right, that are so right. crystal clear. <laughs> right. But in, in each case, the natural microbial um, inhabitants of that biofilm had in their, they had outcompeted the pathogens to the extent where the cheeses were absolutely within EU standards uh -huh. for, for eating. The listeria had been completely eradicated right. from the cheese. Right. Now, part of that is also the fact that they're making a hard-aged cheese. Right. So is right. quite a microbiologically robust cheese right. to begin with. But mm -hmm. this is a system that developed over you know, right. thousands of so years. So it naturally developed to kill off the bad stuff and to promote the good stuff Absolutely. and be incredibly tasty. And, and it's, it's, it's beautiful microbiology in action. Right. And the fact that it, right. it came about without anyone even knowing that they existed right. is the right. particularly right. amazing thing. Um, the, of course, the modern, the modern mentality of, um, of cheese producers and of regulators um, asked the question, Okay, well, this is great. We have these magical gel. Why don't we just take these gel, which have these wonderful natural starter producing activity, mm -hmm. and then ask our producers to put pasteurized milk, and then the gel will provide all of the good stuff, and then you mm -hmm. completely eliminate any risk whatsoever. But that and didn't work. It didn't work. So after it worked for a couple of batches, mm -hmm. but with successive batches of pasteurized milk going into the gel, the microbial biofilm started to degrade. It ruined it. They became unbalanced, mm. and suddenly you were seeing all of these gram-negative and spoilage bacteria <coughs> as part of those microbial communities, rather than the overwhelming preponderance of all of the right mm -hmm. bacteria for making cheese. So it essentially depended on the raw the milk, raw milk right. to maintain its balance. And mm -hmm. I think making cheese twice a day as well, or making mm -hmm. curd twice mm -hmm. a day. And it, it, it's, it's one of those things, if... There's a lot of curiosity amongst some Anglo-Saxon cheesemakers about, oh, wooden vessels, wouldn't this be mm -hmm. an interesting way mm -hmm. to, to claim our own uniqueness? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But you have to commit to yeah. that cheesemaking system. You, you can't to, dabble right, in it. You can't right, make cheese right. twice a week. It, it's We're, we're going to do this twice a day. Right. The, the salaire producers have highly elaborate systems for how they season the gel mm -hmm. at the beginning of the, se of, of, mm -hmm. of the, of the, the production season. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that was just a great... Way to start off the book, mm. you know, like, <laughs> yay, research can be on our side. Yes, absolutely. It completely <laughs> inverts this, this the typical story of scientists coming in and undermining or ruining or stopping traditional right, practice. Here right. the scientists are saving it. Right, right. Now, I did like a quote from a, I guess from a bad guy. Uh, if I want a microbe in my cheese, I'll put it there myself. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say a bad guy. I would say someone who a scientist within a very modern way of making cheese. This is actually a cheesemaker. Oh, okay. And um, the way he the way he sees his cheese is he wants to control. He wants to control it, right. and and it, it's fair enough. He turns out a very consistent cheese, mm -hmm. and in his mind, that is because he is wiping the slate clean and putting mm -hmm. back those microbes that he wants there. In reality, if you look at the rind of this cheese, it is covered with uninoculated microbes. So mm -hmm. we have the, the, the story that we tell, and then we have the reality that's going on in the background. Mm -hmm. And in, in, to some extent, in his defense, or at least to, to, to understand his position, that is, a, is an attitude 
I see a lot across multiple different uh, fermented food, food and drink systems. Mm. If you have a really old school Davis trained US winemaker in California, mm-hmm. they will say something very, very similar to mm. you. That okay. I, that I want to I want have control. complete control uh-huh. over the, the, the microbial uh, constituents of my, mm-hmm. of, of my product. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's interesting. Now, um, I did, I want to skip ahead to talk a little bit about the woman, mm-hmm. Edith Cannon, oh, yes. and um, Tom Calver mm-hmm. wants to recreate yes. her old cheese. Can you tell me a little bit about Edith and then how he wants to do it again? Absolutely. So um, this is really, a, it's an interesting story because right now in Somerset we have three remaining raw milk farmhouse um, Somerset cheddar producers. Mm-hmm. But if you look back 130 years, there were hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. And they had all of the infrastructure that a thriving industry needed. Mm-hmm. Dairy schools, dairy teachers, consultants, and even scientists. Mm-hmm. And the Bath and West mm-hmm. um, Society um, hired, actually, in the 1890s, a scientist from London to come down and participate in the Cheddar School and essentially to bring his scientific apparatus to measure the things that were going on within the cheesemaking process and essentially to help those cheesemakers get better results mm-hmm. by understanding their cheese so that they could compete with American factory cheddar. That Which was, was coming over in droves. Absolutely. <coughs> and getting better or getting better, better enough to yeah. eat. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So he was paired up with Edith Cannon, who was this... Now, what's his name? His name was Frederick J. Lloyd. Okay. J. Lloyd. Okay. And so Lloyd and Edith Cannon were paired up, and she was the instructor at the Somerset Cheese School. And is she 19? And she was 19 when they started working together. In terms of of how we... uh, My my plan for us actually to derive sort of the big cash uh, windfall from this book (laughs) is my... Erotic fiction that I will write. Oh, Fifty about... Shades of Way about oh. the very sort of Featuring stiff starch, starch uh, aprons. <laughs> and because uh, there's an agent, he's in his late oh, 30s yes. when yes, he comes yes. down. Oh, She's oh, in, oh, yes. And I mean, I, I can see it pitching oh, now. Eddie too. Redmayne, Daisy Ridley. I can, I can, I can yeah. see, the, see, oh, see the film already. I can't, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> Blockbuster, summer 2020. So. <laughs> Anyway. Unfortunately, the truth was a lot more uptight than that, at least right, what was recorded. Right. But they, um, but essentially, over the course of about six years, they, um, she made cheese, he took the measurements, and they came to um, a, a very acid-driven understanding of what makes cheddar tick that we continue up to this day. But the interesting thing is if you look at the actual way they were making cheddar, it was very different than Mm -hmm. what we think of artisan Somerset Mm -hmm. cheddar now. Mm -hmm. The process was much slower. They weren't using starter cultures at all, so they were uh, depending entirely on the Mm -hmm. overnight pre-ripening of the milk. And um, it was Is the picture Uh, in the book? So, Her cheese? No, no, that's that's actually from about um, 25 years later. That's Doris Saker. So oh, okay. She was working okay. in 1917. Okay. But again, I would say that those two makes are much more related than, the, mm-hmm. than either of them mm-hmm. is to the cheddar that's made today. So much less heat-driven and much more to do with developing acidity in order to push the whey out mm-hmm. of the curd and to drain mm-hmm. it properly. And so the, the nice thing about, or the, one of the interesting things about Edith Cannon is that she was based, her family farm was actually next door to where the Calvers at Westcombe Dairy make their cheese today. Oh. So, you know, they are really in the heart of oh, great. Somerset Cheddar Country. And I think Tom, having seen pictures and, um, you know, heard about Edith Cannon, mm-hmm. was interested in going back and re-exploring this make in the context of his family's um, mm-hmm. dairy. And well, and, is and he going to do it? Has I mean, he started? He has started experimenting with the Cannon Cheddar, and it's very interesting. You know how you recreate one of these old things is a very interesting question. Right. And it's very interesting because I had the how chance to well go. How well are the recipes written? Well, that's that's one big thing. You know, Cannon and Lloyd they took a lot of measurements. Yes. And they wrote down a lot of things, but the truth is that to recreate, to try to, okay, here you have a vat of milk, now we're going to recreate what they're doing, it's not at all clear. And so much of, really, the problem with Lloyd's research at large is that when you try to reduce the process of making cheese to a description and a set of numbers, 
those do not right. capture. Do not totally capture the right. and the feel the, yeah. of what's going yeah. on. And, and she sounds like she was a genius I, well, I think at this, in terms of touch and feel. Exactly. Someone and smell who was all who the stuff in, that who was can't be in her early twenties in the in the early eighteen nineties. <laughs> right. She actually lived through so there are many people alive today who met her in that she was alive through to the nineteen sixties. She was. Yes. Oh, because she was so young. Because she was yeah. so young, so oh, she was. Oh, that gives me goosebumps. Yeah. She was. Uh, <laughs> she married and she became uh, Mrs. Sage. But uh-huh. if you read, uh, oh right, I saw that somewhere. The, the, yeah. There's a, a a wonderful source, a sort of a, a, a propaganda guide to encourage people to be patriotic and eat British cheese from the mm. 1950s, uh. and that talks about the the joy of talking about talking with with Mrs. Sage, who is the great uh, uh. Cheddar Guru. Grandmother of, of cheddar. Yes, and you know what I wouldn't give to bring back Mrs. Sage today and actually make cheese with her. Yeah. Because even, even within those reams of notes, we're missing something that yeah. really unlocks the secrets of that. Mm-hmm. And that's where and I think... And who knows what the milk was like. No, absolutely. And this you know, is the other thing. You could do exactly the same process to modern milk and come up with a completely right, different right. product. This is one of the places where I think haven't in West Wales is so exciting because they are mm-hmm. taking the, the slightly later Dora Saker method and trying mm-hmm. to work their way into a coherent understanding of that cheese. And actually, a lot of work is going on not just at the cheese level, where I think they're doing amazing things. Rob is a fantastic cheesemaker, but also on the milk side. So Nick Millard, their uh, herdsman, mm-hmm. um, is doing a lot. They've, they don't use any chemicals in the milking parlor. They're using wood wool rather than any sort of paper towels or washing mm-hmm. um, um, to That's clean the, way the others, to, mm-hmm. um, and really going, you know, trying to, to trying to take it back as take far that as they back can. As well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, to really recreate that pre-modern milk, I think it takes even more than that. And one of, you know, one of the great challenges with cheese making in that way, in, in the Edith Cannon way or the Dora Saker way, is that you have to make cheese every single day in right. season. Right. And unfortunately, at the scale that have it is, because they're quite small, the cost of labor of making cheese every day is just absolutely prohibitive. Their, mm-hmm. their costs are already really high. So mm-hmm. they are making cheese every other day. Um, which allows them to make small batches but rather than tiny ones. But isn't he getting money from other sources to be able to keep going, that um, guy? Let me think. I, I, are, you, are you talking about Andrew Hatton? Oh, maybe I'm going back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So I, I think at least with within, with Habit, where they're making about 25 or 30 tons of cheese a year, which mm-hmm. sounds big, but it's actually really tiny, mm-hmm. they can't afford to make every a cheese every day. It's, okay. just, it's just the labor cost is too great. So mm-hmm. they, they have to refrigerate their milk. And again, that's one more thing right. that is, right. you know... Well, and you don't know how the cows have changed. You don't know how the meadow has no, changed. Absolutely. You, you know, there's some things that were not written down. I, that, I think you know. one of the interesting things to see where we have a very definite idea of what cheddar is now mm-hmm. is looking back even as early as, as the 1890s is this time of intense intellectual entrepreneurship on the part of various different people who all have their proprietary method mm-hmm. for how cheddar should be made that produces dramatically different results. Mm-hmm. So they were all competing with that, each other. The eventual actual winner was the Scottish method. Mm-hmm. So whisper it quietly next time you meet Jamie Montgomery, but he makes <laughs> Scottish cheddar. He doesn't make Somerset cheddar. <laughs> no, I mean, that Scottish oh. cheddar today is Somerset cheddar. But, I mean, it, it just goes to show that, really, if you go back 100 years... Cheddar was a massively diverse group of cheeses, mm-hmm. all made in a general area. And mm-hmm. today's, you know, that, that today's <coughs> cheddar could have included cheeses that we would think of as probably more similar to Lancashire. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the full range. And today, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because when you only have three producers, you get a population right. bottlenecking effect. Right. And so I think one of the things... And an expectation from the consumer also. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They want their cheddar to taste a certain way. Exactly. And that is the true taste of Somerset artisan cheddar and today that is the true taste of some right, artisan right. cheddar but I think it masks that there was a huge diversity there that we've forgotten mm-hmm. well one other thing oh there's so many things mm-hmm. um, is I don't think many people know though I think I knew it from reading Gordon's books mm-hmm. is how we took over 
America, cheddar, went to England and took over and ruined your well, cheddar business. What, what I would say <laughs> is American, um, the idea of what we think of as modern cheddar, particularly traditional British artisan farmhouse cheddar right. with its cloth binding. <coughs> that oh, cloth right. binding cloth is even an innovation from the northeastern United States. Right, to, to make it on the boat. Exactly. Like, yes. I mean, I did not realize that. So it's pretty mind-boggling to read this account from 1872 yes. of the American. Yes, and they were suspicious. Like, what is this cloth? <laughs> yeah, Like, absolutely. what is going on here? That the person in the restaurant who had tasted this great cheese could not be convinced that it was an American cheese until he was shown the cloth binding on the cheese. Uh -huh. And then he was like, uh -huh. okay, it's an American cheese. Uh -huh. And just to think of that foreign world, you know, the, yeah. the, it's just, it flies in the face of everything that we've ever been told right, about right, what, what right. cheddar is. Right, uh, right. Sure. And that American cheese was dominant mm -hmm. in the then, British market. Yes, and mm -hmm. then faded again. Ameri yeah, that American factory cheese killed Somerset cheddar in a lot of ways. Well, and you've the decisions, <laughs> the cheapness of the British consumer in favouring, yeah. because it's, it's interesting when people talk about it, of that, those first, those, that yeah. early era of American imports, is that they talk they talk about, well, the American cheese, it's not very good, but it's very cheap. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, and the cheapness, the not the cheapness. The consumer, I thought, no, 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 oh, quite oh. the opposite. The consumer favoured <laughs> the... The cheap. The cheap. Yeah. And even though it came all the way over, Mm -hmm. Those costs didn't make it more the expensive, price. which yeah. is incredible. Well, we live in an era of globalization. I think it's it's one of it's one it's an interesting <laughs> well, that was thing. Early globalization you see yeah. is that the exactly. first peak of globalization is immediately before the First World War. Right. Right. And and huh. certainly the U the UK London where we live was mm -hmm. the great imperial metropole right. where you could buy right. things from all around mm -hmm. the world. Yeah. But the other thing that killed British farmhouse cheese was the liquid milk market. Was that farmers could get a really good price for selling their liquid milk as soon as they made it, and now is that because of tea? Yeah, this is my <laughs> this is my theory that they, and uh, cheap factory cheese that uh -huh. um, that if right. you have a and. It's funny. There was milk to be... They needed milk to be drunk. They needed yeah. milk to right. be drunk. The mm -hmm. milk market was booming. The dairy industry was booming. You mm -hmm. could get a great price for that liquid milk. Who in their right mind would make cheese? Is it because Britain is so much smaller than America? Like, so that it took more cows to feed everybody? I think with the... America in the, the, the latter stage of the 19th century has lots of land yeah. that is cheap. Mm -hmm. but very limited supply of trained labour. Mm -hmm. And so because one cheese maker can make quite a lot of cheese, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of bringing together the milk from multiple farms to be processed by, 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 by a single individual mm -hmm. really, really took off, which gave you a tremendous economy of scale mm -hmm. and also meant that because you suddenly had the trained professional who all they did was make cheese that it was easier for them to adopt innovations. It, mm -hmm. if it, the, the British cheese making, because it was highly uh, diversified and very much at the farmhouse level, mm -hmm. it was tricky to persuade, uh, often for very good reason, mm -hmm. uh, the, the British farmer's wife mm -hmm. that she could do something differently. Often they, their resistance would be, but I make a better cheese. Mm -hmm. Where, whereas the market became decided on that on 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 price, mm -hmm. right, right. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. well, this is just uh, y there are so many topics in your book. I didn't even broach half of them, <laughs> but we'll have to end. Um, maybe when you come back, we'll meet again and talk more. We'd love to. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that would be great. So I want to say goodbye for this week's cutting the curd. Uh, we're discussing reinventing the wheel. Bronwyn and Francis, thank you so much. This has been a great uh, talk. Thank you so much indeed. This is great. Thank you very, very much for having us here. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.